Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 64, The British and the Mediterranean in 1940. With us today is Andrew Lambert, the Lawton Professor of Naval History in the Department of War Studies at King's College London and the Director of the Lawton Naval History Research Unit. He's the author of 10 books and at least 18 major articles on the British Navy, and his latest book is Challenge, Britain Against America in the War in the Naval War of 1820. I've already ordered my copy, but as an American, I'm sure it's going to be a painful delight to read. So, uh, Professor Lambert, thank you very much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. You're right. My pleasure. Thank you. So, uh, tell you what, let's just uh, jump into this, um, and let's let's set the scene. It's the summer of 1940. The French are out. The British have taken action against the French fleet that they felt was necessary in Operation Catapult and, uh, and, and other points besides Mel's Air Kabir. Uh, at this point, the U.S. President Roosevelt has no way of bringing America into the war. Um, the British have been pushed out of certain frontier posts in eastern and central Africa. The Italians are at Sidi Barani in overwhelming numbers. The government of Egypt has declared not to fight unless directly attacked. Um, the situation in the Middle East is unstable as far as politically. The Arabs are keenly watching what happens to the British Empire and, in fact, are watching um, with a sharp eye as far as the Battle of Britain to see what will happen to the home island. General de Gaulle and General Spears have been repulsed at Dakar. And lastly, the Italian Navy is in the Mediterranean in impressive numbers, but at least on paper. So, uh, Professor Lambert, if you could set the scene for us, um, with, the, with the British having their ally taken out of the war, I mean, exactly what was Cuttingham, the acting admiral, thinking at, the, at that time? or what, How did they see their, their situation at this point in the war? The British have, have lost the Battle of France. France has collapsed. Britain is not going to fight Germany in Europe. The British simply aren't going to have enough men to fight the Germans, so they retreat to fight a proper British war, a war of sea control, power projection, and industrial and economic mobilization. Mm. But to do that, they need to control the Mediterranean. Uh, the problem in the summer of 1940 is that the French had actually taken control of the western half of the Mediterranean under the alliance with their fleet at Merzel Kabir and Toulon. Mm -hmm. And the British were in the eastern half, the, the beyond Italy, based mostly at Alexandria uh, on the coast of Egypt. So with the French taken out, the British suddenly found themselves with only half enough ships in the Mediterranean and all at one end. So the first thing they did was to detach... Um, a strike force called Force H of a battle cruiser, an aircraft carrier, and some destroyers down to Gibraltar mm -hmm. 
essentially to seal off the entrance of the Mediterranean against surface ships and to provide options for running convoys through to Malta. Malta is going to be the pivot of, of everything that happens in the Mediterranean. Right. It's the greatest natural harbour in the Mediterranean. It's exactly halfway between Gibraltar and Alexandria. It's mm-hmm. just off the coast of Sicily. It's just off the coast of North Africa. It is the choke point between the two halves of the Mediterranean. And it's a first-class naval base, which the British have been using in peacetime for their fleet. Right. So the British want to keep the British want to keep Malta. It's an airfield, it's a submarine base, it's a flotilla base, and it's really the hub of so much of what they're going to do. Keeping Malta is going to give them the option of using the Mediterranean. If they lose Malta, they will lose the Mediterranean, and they will probably then lose Egypt as well, and with that, potentially the war. Right. So the stakes couldn't be higher. The problem is that everybody in Britain is watching a lot of Messerschmitts and Spitfires fighting over the coast of Kent and uh, Essex. Right. And the Battle of Britain takes inevitably priority. It really is more important to the people in Britain. But the Mediterranean is critical. And the British fleet in the Mediterranean, in three battleships and aircraft carriers and cruisers and destroyers, is very small. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Italians have twice as many ships, at least, and at least six times as many submarines. The Italians outnumber the British by three or four to one in most categories, slightly less in capital ships. Mm -hmm. So if the Italians are going to fight the British on the level, they're going to win this competition. Uh, they've got more ships, they've got more men, they've got a lot more aeroplanes and a lot more submarines. If they can just bring everything together and use them effectively, they can win this. Right. But the have... problem is uh-huh. the the yeah the problem is that the British fleet is very confident. Now, many of the units in the fleet have already been in battle with the Germans uh, during the Norway campaign, and they have no doubt that when they meet the Italians, they will defeat them. Uh, the Italians are good sailors, and they run their ships well, but the British don't think that they're on the same level uh, as themselves. So they have every confidence that they're going to win. And the opening encounters will demonstrate that there's a significant difference in the morale of the two fleets. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not the physical assets. You know, navies are not about ships, they're about people. And if your people believe and have the quality, then you will prevail, uh, even if your equipment isn't perhaps quite as n- numerous or outstanding as the, uh, the enemy. Right. So very early on, there's an engagement off the south coast of Italy at Ponte Stilo on the 9th of July, when the British flagship, HMS Warspite, uh, lands a hit on the Italian flagship, the uh, Giulio Cesar, and, and the Italians retreat. Mm. And that's the last time that they faced the British willingly in battle uh, for the rest of the war. Wow. There's a, the, at the heart of all of this, there is a, a commanding personality. On the Italian side, they have some good admirals, but the British have a much better admiral. Uh, Andrew Cunningham, who's going to command the Mediterranean for the next three years mm-hmm. from the darkest days of the war right through to Operation Torch, um, Husky landing on Sicily and Anzio, uh, he's an extremely experienced fighting sailor, very determined man. And he knows that if you get on top of the enemy in morale terms, if you impress the enemy with your determination, your skill and your power, uh, it doesn't matter that you're a few ships short. Uh, you've got the enemy half beaten because right. he knows 
knows that you will attack. Uh, I mean, he's highly aggressive. He knows that the, the best way to deal with an enemy fleet uh, is, to, is to attack them. Whenever he gets a chance, he's organizing large, complex operations to move men, ships, and material to keep the army supplied, to make sure the army can defend Egypt critically, uh, to keep Malta supplied, and to bring in the reinforcements that he's slowly receiving to get his fleet up to strength to take the war effort on. So really, in the opening two months of the war in, in the Mediterranean, his job is just to keep the Italians quiet, just to keep them on the back foot, uh, as we say in England, on the defensive. Right. And he manages that remarkably well. And the British really needed that. I mean, like you said, they were um, they were holding their own in the Battle of Britain, but it probably didn't feel like that to them. And any good news they could get, um, especially out of the Mediterranean, which is very important to them, is going to lift their morale um, until the Battle of Britain is more conclusive because they're just not sure how well, you know, with hindsight we know, but how well they were doing. Absolutely. Um, what's interesting, of course, is that at the height of the Battle of Britain, Churchill, who's only been Prime Minister for a few weeks, decides that the only armoured division the British Army actually has, uh, the only fully formed tank division, will be sent to Egypt. <laughs> the British aren't expecting the Germans to be able to invade. They send their only armoured division straight to Egypt because they expect that the next round of land fighting will be against the Italians and it'll be in Libya. So people who are in the know in Britain are quite quietly confident that the Germans cannot come because to invade England, you have to come by sea, and the mm -hmm. Germans are not going to do that. They don't have any navy left after the Norway campaign, right. uh, and they don't have any invasion shipping. Uh, they don't have the lift to carry enough men. They don't have a place they could land those men. They don't have proper landing craft. They haven't done any serious reconnaissance. And it's quite clear that the German army had no intention of putting to sea in face of the Royal Navy. So the Battle of Britain is very good public relations exercise. Mm -hmm. It's very heavily marketed in the United States. Look at the British. We've got a better fight than the Germans, and we're winning the Battle of Britain. It's mostly propaganda. Uh, and the Battle of Britain is a score draw, um, quite a high score draw. The Luftwaffe can't beat the Royal Air Force. The Royal Air Force can't beat the Luftwaffe. Right. Uh, but because the Luftwaffe can't win, Germany can't possibly hope to invade. Uh. So the Battle of Britain is, is fought out to a stalemate. And in this period, the Navy in the Mediterranean picks up strength and critically acquires a brand aircraft carrier. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. 
For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com The number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com That's YahooFinance.com So so we get to the point where um, very early on, um, Cunningham has displayed uh, an, a moral ascendancy over, or I guess I should say, uh, an intimidating presence over the Italians. Um, even though they have, like you said, they have all these assets, he has the either the attitude or the personality, he's going to bring the fight to them. They start to back off. Uh, General Graziani's in uh, Egypt, barely. He's stalling. He doesn't want to go against the British land forces. And then uh, we come to the Battle of Taranto in, no- in the mid-November. Could you tell me about that, please? Yeah. The British um, invented the aircraft carrier in the First World War. And in the middle of 1918, they carried out the world's first aircraft carrier strike operation against Antwerp, uh, which is a Zeppelin ship. And from 1920, they've been working on how to use aircraft carriers to strike enemy fleets that were going in harbor behind defense. Mm. This was the, the dream of all British admirals from Francis Drake to be, can we go in and get them? And so the British aircraft carriers and the, the British officers running them emphasized the strike on targets. And an obvious target, given how few major navies there were, the Italian naval bay on tow. Mm-hmm. So in, by 1930, the British were exercising, attacking enemy naval bases just like Toronto. And when Cunningham gets a new aircraft, which is a brand new armored aircraft area, he moves quickly to put this operation into practice. This isn't something he comes up with, uh, this operation has been planned many years before. Mm-hmm. So the fleet carries out a complex series of operations so the Italian army show what the main British objective is. What Cunningham is doing is moving convoys in from parts of the Mediterranean. He's reinforcing and relieving ships' uh, formations. So from the Italian perspective, not clear what the object of all of these British movements are. They interlock, they intersect, but the, the ultimate remains shrouded. The illustrious gets in the position to fly off and just over 20 swordfish torpedo bombers. These are the famous biplane torpedo bombers the British use the entire war. Right. Uh, they fly at night, the British are by night carrier operations, and so the whole of this operation conducted at night. Take off, flight to target, strike, return, air landing. It's, it's all in darkness. Mm-hmm. Uh, they lose two aircraft, uh, two anti off fire, and they sink three Italian battleships, uh, which put Italian and battle fleet out of, out of operation for a considerable period of time. Wow. Uh, further shatters their morale. They're not even at sea, and the British have turned up in the middle of the night and sunk them. Right. Um, it, it, it's, a, you know, it, it's a stunning operation of war. Um, and remember, it's only just over 20 torpedo bombers. This isn't Pearl Harbor with 100-plus planes. This is right. 20. Uh, it's all the torpedoes hit. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. it, you know, the success rate to hit on ship, very, very high. And with that, Cunningham has now got the Italian fleet off the board. He's got a carrier with a few good fighters on, and particularly important, he's got radar, and he's got radar-controlled fighter aircraft. This is the first time they've been seen in naval warfare. 
developed a method of using fighters with radar and voice control from the ship. Mm-hmm. So the few fighters they have can be vectored in on incoming targets. This is the system that will be so effective in the Pacific War. Right. That combination of radar so that you can see the enemy strike coming in and intercept it before it arrives over the target. And for the rest of the, the year, the British have almost complete moral ascendancy. Uh, the results of Taranto mean that the Italian fleet retreats uh, up to central northern Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are really very few um, things the Italian fleet can get on, uh, but they're really not taking much effort against the British. Uh, this means that the Italian army in North Africa can go and get its supplies. It means the British can move ships, the Italians can't. And logistically for the Italians, it's a nightmare. That's amazing. So Cunningham has, has the initiative. Uh, the problem is that uh, the Germans respond to this fairly quickly, uh, as the Germans tend to do, uh, having noticed they have a major problem. The Italians are not able to deal with the British. Uh, they send Flieger Corps, which is the specialized Luftwaffe anti-shipping unit, down to Sicily, uh, and all of a sudden tables are going to be turned pretty swiftly. Um, in the first week of January, uh, a series of operations result in damage to Cunningham's flagship, the War Spire, the illustrious as a large cruiser. Mm. So all of a sudden, having beaten the Italians and complete control over them, the Germans come in and maybe is now in a very difficult position. They're up against a big, well-organized and very professional uh, aviation strike force and uh, have problems. And not only that, but now that the war in Greece has started, um, the British are trying to resupply um, forces and uh, supplies there, and they still have to, to a certain degree, deal with the um, the Italian Navy that is being goaded by Germany. Now, it's in some ways, it's political master telling them to keep trying, even though um, they don't want to, and they certainly don't have the technological means. Um, one of those, in particular, is the Battle of Cape, is that Matapan, in March of 41? Yeah. Yeah. The, what's interesting is that the British detach troops from their victorious army in Libya mm-hmm. and send them off to reinforce Greece. Um, this isn't going to work because the Germans are taking part in the invasion of Greece, uh, so Greece is going to fall quite swiftly. Uh, the British don't have enough power, military power, to, to, to save Greece. And those forces then get evacuated back to Crete. Uh-huh. and they then have to be evacuated. But in, in an attempt to cut off the British reinforcements moving into the Greek theatre, the Italian Navy comes out with their undamaged new battleship, the Vittorio Veneto, and a large force of cruisers, and they're searching for British convoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the British know what's going on, because now the Germans are here, the British can read German intelligence traffic. Uh-huh. Its codes are secure. The German ones particularly the Luftwaffe codes, are already vulnerable. German naval codes have held out, but the Luftwaffe is a very slack organization, (laughs) and the British have broken Luftwaffe traffic. So the problem for the Italians is not their fleet or their operation. It's that the Luftwaffe are doing the scouting for them. Right. So everything the Luftwaffe tells the Italians by radio, the British pick up. Cunningham is able to get out with three battleships, uh, an aircraft carrier, a new aircraft carrier, the Formidable, 
uh, and some destroyers. Uh, he very nearly uh, catches the entire Italian fleet. Uh, it's touch and go. He torpedoes the Vittorio Veneto, uh, but the ship is still able to, to maintain speed and get away. Right. He then, and second strike then, cripples one of the Italian heavy cruisers, the Pola. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's left dead in the water, and later uh, the Admiral sends back two other cruisers to go and pick up the Polar. Unbeknownst to them, because they don't have radar, they stumble into the British battle fleet, and all three of these ships are then sunk very rapidly at very close quarters, uh, along with the two destroyers. Uh, British casualties, about three. um, Italian humans, um, Italian casualties, three big cruisers, two two destroyers, and uh, several thousand men. Um, really, the Italian Navy's morale is not going to recover from this. Right. And the idea of fight, fighting the British in a, a stand-up naval battle uh, goes away at this point. So the British have, find themselves in a difficult position. They have mastery on the surface of the sea. And during the evacuation yeah. of Crete that follows, they're able to move on the surface, but they're under constant air attack. Mm-hmm. And within months, there will be German U-boats as well as Italian submarines in theater. So they start to take losses from both air attack and from submarine attack. And really, by the end of 1941, uh, by the time of Pearl Harbor, for example, mm-hmm. uh, the Royal Navy in the Mediterranean is run down to a very low level. They've got damaged ships, lost ships. Um, they're just running out of resource. It's, they're really coming to the end of what they're capable of doing. Uh, it's not the naval fighting, it's the, it's the support of the army, it's moving in convoys, it's trying to use sea power against an overwhelming air threat. Uh, it's really not until 1942-43 that the situation changes when the British get more ships, uh, they get more equipment, and we start, when we get to the torch landings at the end of 1942, the Mediterranean is then reopened and there's vital strategic waterways and once again being used to move men and materials from northern Europe through to the Far East and to link up the two halves of the World War, the European War and the Asian War. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the Royal Navy in the Mediterranean that just holds that line open for the duration of the conflict. But it's a, a real roller coaster ride from the high points of, of Toronto and Matapan, some very low points of battering their suit off Crete uh, only a few months after Matapan, uh, right the way down to the end of 1941, when they start to lose significant numbers of ships. So it's it's very difficult. The one thing you can say is that the Royal Navy understands that fighting at sea does involve losing ships. Right. Uh, the Italians and the Germans tend to make a, make a fetish out of saving their ships mm-hmm. rather than using them. Uh, navies that don't use their ships and don't try to gain control of the sea end up surrendering at the end of the war uh, without losing many ships. Uh, the Germans in the First World War will be a very good example. Their entire fleet was still there at the end of the war. It done nothing. Um, the British weren't going to make that mistake. They lost ships and they lost people, but they won. They won the campaign. That's amazing. I mean, yeah, like you said, the roller coaster ride. <clears throat> Excuse me. First, um, Britain and France has a plan, and then France is out, and the Italians look impressive. But Cunningham takes the war to them. They're able to um, dominate the Italians. Then the Germans come in, <clears throat> and like you said, the the, the British are going to do what they can. But in the process, they are going to lose ships, and it's just going to get harder and harder for them. Um, I think I read somewhere that 
was it the, the Battle of Taranto that the Japanese studied that very carefully and used it against the Prince of Wales uh, and Pearl Harbor in the future? The, the Japanese uh, naval attaché was in uh, Taranto within a day of the attack. Uh, there's a photograph of him standing on the steps of the, the Italian Air Force uh, officer's mass having come down to see what had been done and to work out how to do torpedo bombing in a shallow harbor. Uh, the British had made this work very well. So it certainly has a bearing on the Pearl Harbor attack, which was a, a carrier strike from the sea against a fleet in harbor. And it, Pearl Harbor is a, is a larger-scale version of, of what the British do at Toronto, with, of course, the exception the British were already at war with the Italians when they attacked. Uh, the attack on the Prince of Wales and Repulse off Malaya at the same time is a slightly different operation because that was land-based um, twin-engine strike aircraft, uh, which proved to be very successful. That was a, a particularly impressive piece of Japanese development. They had ultra-long-range aircraft carrying torpedoes over very long distances, mm -hmm. uh, which you know, provided an element of technological surprise that the British hadn't anticipated. But certainly, the Japanese are in Europe. They're working closely with the Italians and the Germans, and they're picking up anything they can, uh, not just from their allies, but also from the experience their allies are having at the hands of the British. Ah. And as the Japanese Navy had always learned from the British from the very beginning, uh, indeed, it, it still has traces of that British heritage in it to this day. Uh, they were particularly interested to see how the old masters were still carrying on. Um, the Japanese knew that aircraft carriers were invented by the British because the British taught them how to use aircraft carriers in, in 1920, um, as they did the Americans uh, and the French. Wow. The aircraft carrier was a British invention, and the British were quite generous. They, they allowed everybody to come along and have a look and, uh, and learn. Um, so what we see by, by the end of 1941 is the Japanese had another best part of 18 months to, to digest the results of those operations mm. and to come up with their own variation on that. Not one aircraft carrier, but six, uh, not 20 planes, but 350. And the thing to say about Pearl Harbor is, given that they were sitting ducks on Sunday morning and weren't expecting it, the, the, the success rate was remarkably low. You know, if, if that attack had been conducted in a thoroughly professional way, you would have expected to have sunk everything. Right. Lucky for us. Um, you know, the, the losses were heavy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think things got a bit confused on the day, and it looks like too many planes were trying to attack the same targets at the same time. I think the the operation, you know, began to break down, and there, there was a loss of control on the part of the strike leaders. Right. If I can ask about the, um, the Mediterranean. Um, so as far as I can tell, the Germans bring in aircraft and submarines to help deal with the British um, naval vessels in the Mediterranean. So is it a, is it a combination of <clears throat> those two things plus whatever the Italians could bring to it that made the British uh, have such a hard time in uh, 41 and 42? Yeah, the, um, the arrival of, of Luftwaffe and then of the U-boats provides a cutting edge to the, the Axis war effort, which the Italians... You know, hadn't been able to provide. So the, the capital ship sinkings at sea are, are, are German submarines. The, the aircraft carriers, are, the outcrawl is sunk by a German submarine. The, the illustrious and formidable and put out of action by German aircraft. 
what the Italians bring to party is the numbers of ships. Um, they do very well escorting their convoys across the North Africa. They, they put up a start fight there, mm-hmm. and they take a heavy toll on British submarines trying to interfere with that traffic. They're providing all of the lift. You know, the Germans don't get to North Africa in German ships. The Italians take them. Ah. And it, the Italians keep fighting that convoy battle right to the end of, of Mussolini's regime when it collapses in 1943. Mm-hmm. So the Italian Navy is out there. It takes very heavy losses. Um, you can't fault them for their commitment, their determination. Um, they were perhaps not quite as you know, professional in the, in the fighting sense as the British, but they, they, there were certainly no problems with their determination or commitment. And if you look at a list of the Italian Navy in the Second World War against the must ships, you'll find sunk. Um, so they, they lost very heavily held classes of, of escort vessels wiped out in convoy battles. Wow. And a lot of their merchant ships as well, they, they put a huge effort into keeping that war going, and they took a real battering. That's amazing. I'm, I'm, so, I'm very curious about uh, Cunningham. You said he's around until, um, what, 43, I think you said? Yep. Cunningham is uh, one of those rare, exceptional people. I, I wrote a book called Admirals a few years ago. I looked at the, the evolution of, of the business of being an admiral from the Spanish Armada through to the Second World War. And, oh, wow. uh, I used him to exemplify what naval command looks like at the end. He has a very effective staff system. He commands the whole theater from the bridge of his flagship. He's, re- he's relentless and determined. He uses his staff up. Um, you know, like like oil and petrol in their car. When <laughs> when they get exhausted, he just sends them home and gets some more. Um, wow. But he's handpicking the people who will be leading the Royal Navy in the at the end of the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, the British fleet in the Pacific was all was led almost entirely by people that had been part of his team. He picked the best. Uh, he developed their careers, and when the war in the Far East ended. The senior officers afloat with that fleet were all Cunningham's men. He is the last old-fashioned great admiral. You know, when, when he comes ashore in, in 1942 and, and no longer commands from the flagship, it's the end of an epoch in history, a 500-year period when admirals command great fleets and great theaters of war from the flagship. He's the last to do that. And it's um, you know it's very much the end of an era. But his relentless determination, his overriding professionalism, um, and his obsession with getting a grip on the enemy and making the enemy bend to your will. Uh, this was a man who'd never let anybody interfere with his career. He made wow. his career. He, he he avoided all the appointments he didn't want. <laughs> uh, he commanded the same destroyer for six years because he was so good. Nobody dared remove him. Right. Uh, really an exceptional human being. Um, and then in 1943, he had to go back to London to take over uh, and running the Admiralty as the first Sea Lord uh, because Admiral Pound had died. Right. Um, he didn't want to do it because he didn't like being a desk officer, but he knew that it had to be done and he knew that given his rank and his celebrity that he was the, the man who had to do it. And so he carried that burden right down to the end of the war and he made sure that the Navy was in good shape before we retired. That is... Truly one of the, one of the half-dozen really great men of the Second World War. Wow. So, that, so you said he's covered by, in your book uh, called Admirals? Yeah. Okay. He's, uh, he's the, last of the, uh, the last of a long and illustrious line. 
Okay, that will be the second book of yours that I buy today. So I'm really looking forward to that. I can't wait to uh, cover him more in uh, <clears throat> in detail. So um, again, I just want to thank you very much for spending your time with us. Uh, the Mediterranean makes a lot more sense to me now, and hopefully to my listeners. And again, I just really appreciate it. Is there anything you would like to end? I think. Um, We've covered the Mediterranean. Uh, maybe sometime in the future, if it's okay with you, we could talk about the Atlantic because that's something I will be covering after I finish up uh, North Africa in 1940. Yeah, that would uh, be happy to do that. Excellent. Yeah, so, that's fair. Yeah, I'm not Look trying to, to that. Good. I'm not trying to push all my work off on you, but hey, if you can get someone who actually knows no, what no. I'm talking about, <laughs> that would be great. Well, no, it's it. It's, uh, it's, it's, all, it's always good to have a chance to, to address a new audience. So Thanks. it's been a great pleasure. Excellent. Thank you, Professor Lambert. Uh, thank you for everything. And hopefully I will be talking uh, to you soon. All the best. All right. Take Thanks care. very much. Bye. Yes. Bye-bye.